You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Me, Charles Foley in Minneapolis. And me, John Hall in New York City. Welcome home, Charles, just back from Tanzania. How was the trip? Oh, the trip was wonderful, John. Um, visited many of the old haunts and I... I think the highlight was spending some time um, in the Serengeti ecosystem and most specifically on the short grass plains of Ndutu. And Ndutu is actually in the Ngorongoro conservation area, um, but it's it's all forms part of that main Serengeti ecosystem. And it was great because at two o'clock in the morning, the wildebeest migration started moving through and you can just hear the sounds of tens of thousands of animals walking past. And I have to admit, it's it, it's really stunning. And what, what happens is that they come to this area every year to, to breed. And the idea is to pump out tens of thousands of little wildebeest and completely overwhelm all the carnivores because they, they can't eat all of them. Um, and... I know that you know for many whammer watchers, they they focus on the numbers, etc. But if you haven't been to the Serengeti ecosystem, um, I highly, highly recommend it. Particularly if you can catch the main wildebeest migration, because it's just stunning to see that many animals. Um, and in the Ndutu area, you can drive off road, and so you can just spend half an hour driving through herds of thousands of wildebeests and there's a part in front of you like the Red Sea and there's like close up behind you. So it really is magnificent. And frankly, I cannot uh, recommend it highly enough. Lucky you. It sounds absolutely magical. And I didn't get the full migration, but what I saw, as you say, the noises was as much a part of it as the, as the spectacle of all the animals just hearing those gruntings are echoing. It's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Lucky, lucky you. And perfect yeah. timing. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was great. So on today's program, we are delighted to have Therese and John Hart, who have lived and worked in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was formerly known as Zaire, for nearly 50 years. And during that time, they have conducted seminal work on that most elusive and mythical of all African ungulates, the okapi, including doing the first ever field studies of this species in which they actually trapped and radio collared several animals. And the hearts over the years have led many expeditions into previously little-known regions of the Congo, and they provided the data that led to the establishment of several hugely important protected areas, including the Okapi Reserve in 1992, the Itombe Reserve in 2006, and most recently, the Lomami National Park in 2016, which Therese ran as the head park warden until just a few months ago. And over the years, they have also helped discover not just one, but several new species of primates. Additionally, the Hearts established a Center for Forest Conservation Training at Ipulu in the Aturi Forest. And over the years, they have trained over 30 national scientists. Teresa and John, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. 
Very glad to be here. So yeah, excited to talk to you. Yeah, no, I've, I've followed your blog for a while. And uh, this is, you are the most exciting guest for me we've had on this podcast. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. So perhaps you could start off by letting us know how each of you got involved in um, biology and conservation. Um, Therese, do you want to start off with that? Actually, I think John should start off as he got involved at an earlier age than I did. Yes, I guess the way we talked about this question actually this morning, and um, it's like two different skeins of thread that get twined together into a single rope. So um, I started, I was a, I started before even in going to school. I know this because my mother, um, who was a widow, just widowed actually, <laughs> and went to England, but left me with her parents, who uh, her father was a professor at the University of Michigan and um, had his summers off. She went to England for the summer and left me with him. And I remember vividly now, he's an avid fisherman, and I remember vividly now going out with him fishing, loving fishing. But then the first fish caught, I was no longer interested in fishing. I just wanted to look at that fish open its gills, open its mouth, move its eye, spread its fins, everything I could. And when a different fish came up, I was totally delighted because it was something different, a different color, a different size. So that really started with me there. And it just kept going. Um, as a grade school kid, the neighbors my um, in the little town in Minnesota where my father was a stepfather now because my mother remarried after my the first father died, um, was uh, the neighbors had um, big flocks of crossbills came down from the north. This is in Minnesota and filled their feeders. And I just went over to their house. They let me sit in their house and just in front of that feeder, looking at those crossbills, white wing crossbills, red crossbills, both species were there, males, females, all this and that. And so I was nine years old, maybe 10. Judge Flaherty, he was the owner of the bird feeder, gave me a pair of binoculars and my parents followed it with a bird book and it just took off from there. So it was one thing after another. Um, I think in seminal moments were hands-on experiences with mammals and birds, in fact, really, because I got, by the time I was in high school, I had, I was keeping hawks and into falconry. I worked with um, the Hammerstroms, a couple in Wisconsin on uh, birds of prey, catching them, banding them, all of this, and uh, had my own birds, ferrets, every other thing. So, um, you know, that was just kept moving uh, that way. And But it was always an interest in, um, I would say, both discovery, but also um the whole ecology of it. It wasn't just having the animal or seeing the animal once. I wanted to know about the habitat it was in. Where did it go? Why were I, was I seeing something some places and not others? So that was a little bit the, the, um, the, the childhood things that got me going. I'd say very important. It was I had lived in a place uh, and with a family that allowed me to roam on my own close as I was younger, further as I got older, the bicycle was there, 
finally my parents' car. And, um, you know, I could ex- discover this on my own terms and in my own way. So that was a little bit the scheme, my scheme in this combination that Teresa and I are now. And I'll now, you know, turn this over to her and let her, <laughs> you're a little, I want to hear a little bit about her getting started. Well, John was small town Minnesota, and I was urban Western New York. Um, But again, family was very important. My parents loved to go camping and they took me camping and they gave me an opportunity to take a geology course uh, before going to college. And that's what really opened my eyes to the diversity of the landscape and the incredible history and the differences in in geological history. And that was one side. And then once in college, uh, I was very interested in insects more than than mammals. Uh, And I uh, was interested in ants. I made a um, dragonfly collection, which I continued for a while when I was in Peace Corps. Um, but it was very interesting to me to meet John. We went to the same college because he he was collect he was netting birds, mist netting birds at the time. Bird banding and bird banding, right? And um, to see him naming all these birds as they came in was just. Oh, you know, the importance of naming, uh, the importance of uh, that, that the association between different names and an understanding of biodiversity um, was, was new to me and greatly increased my interest in, in any kind of biology, botany, insects, you know, entomology, mammalogy. So that's a more general sort of approach. But those two came together really around conservation. And I would say um, that got started in the 1980s. Really, basically, yes. Oh, even earlier in college when we were seeing um, river valleys be transformed by housing projects. Um, It was again, a visceral and direct encounter with loss of nature or transformation that was motivational. The reading helped us understand it. Um, Meeting other people helped inspire it and opened us. But we had to, we really experienced loss of nature that we, you know, appreciated and even considered something of our own because we had these special little places we would go to to see yeah. the spring flora yeah. coming out, um, watch uh, snipe um, winnowing in the spring, all of these things, them yeah. all of that. And that was jolted us a little bit. And I'd say it really came together um, when we started working in Africa and we were really open. This is in the 1970s now, really opened up to the natural world there and seeing not only tremendous change and but tremendous uh, potential loss at stake and the complexities around that. And I think that that uh, focused slowly but surely our minds into conservation. And by the time we were with with you, Charles, back in WCS days, 
Um, you know, we were already had made that move um, from just the observer naturalists and discovery and naming and collecting information to wanting to make a difference. Here, I'd have to say that a person who was important was Thomas Strukfeger. Um, when we were working in the Aturi Forest, uh, we were working this is very, 1980s. Yeah, 1980s. We were working very much in the present. Um, and it was a huge forest, small villages. Um, it was hard for us. We did not think in terms of it being lost. When he came over from Uganda and spent uh, a week with us, his immediate thing was this force is in danger. And it was sort of like, oh, you know, why does he say that? What is he coming from? And it was the understanding of what he had seen in Uganda and his interpreting it to uh, the Ituri and then later seeing his interpretations very much come true that uh, were, were important, I believe. Yeah. Also, so I would say a deal for us in uh, the 1970s now, I was in, living with the bamboo pygmies at that time. Therese was a Peace Corps volunteer, but who had a vacation. And we had these one-speed Raleigh bicycles of... Um, African fame, everybody, the Tolekas is maybe still being used. <laughs> still being used. Uh, and we, during one of Teresa's vacations, we took a couple months. I think we had that long. Yeah. We rode our bicycles basically from the level of Lake Albert. She was in a little town on the, uh, just uh, west of Bunia there on, on, on Lake Albert, all the way down the Albertine Rift on these back roads, whatever. Uh, around the lake, across the Varunga Park, for heaven's sakes, I remember being stopped, stopped and to let the animals, let the animals cross, cross buffalo, all of that, you know, taken in yeah. by whoever that we really, and then ending up at the bottom of Lake Kivu, at Bukavu, um, you know, what is that? Must be 700 mi miles mm. at least. I got to look out on Google Earth on like this. Yeah. Anyhow, the, uh, that trip was also an incredible eye-opener because we saw these remnant forests in the Albertine Rift where there were still gorillas, and we took part oh, in, we took that. part in or witnessed um, uh, a hunt for some of the last gorillas in this tiny little remnant forest where George Schaller in 1959 had reported gorillas near Alimbongo, all of that. And it was just that they were just disappearing in front of us. And it was just, we were devastated by this. And, um, you know, here were these, this last families of gorillas just under terror in these places. The first thing to do, these were people kill the gorillas and then they cut the forest. There's now, you'd never know there were any ever gorillas there now. It's cow pasture. So this was, these were all um, jolting experiences in a visceral sense for us that motivated us and we were together to do that that was a great ride <laughs> right and okay so you were both interested in biology and then you went and basically spent the majority of your lives living and working in 
what is frankly probably one of the most difficult countries in the world to work in and also one of the most important countries for conservation the democratic republic of congo so how did that actually come about what um what steps did you take to actually come to to work there um some of the motivation was from colin turnbull colin turnbull wrote a book the forest people um which is a little bit romantic romanticized but it uh was a story about the pygmies, the Bambuti pygmies, and the closeness, their, their, the closeness they felt to the forest and how their conception of life was very uh, um, built on the, the forest and togetherness with the forest and with each other. And um, But there was very little in the book that was ecological, like, well, what was their relationship with the animals? Was this long term? Uh, were they, you know, what was the impact their, of hunting? Their, yeah, the impact of their hunting. And um, John was very interested in, in getting a more ecological view on them. And we spent a lot of time talking about this. And he actually got a Watson Fellowship to um, work in uh, northern Kivu in uh, the forest, the Ituri, this is Southern Ituri Forest. And I uh, got a Peace Corps position in not too far from there, uh, in outside of the forest um, near Bunyang, near, as John said, near Lake Albert. And so this allowed us to continue to exchange ideas um, and to continue to travel and to to see, um, you know, John had a six month fellowship and he was there for over a year. Mm, over two. Over two years. <laughs> yep. He was because he was still there when I got there. Right. I'd say it wasn't um, it was a step by step in Congo. I remember, um, first of all, just when we were started, you know, just learning, trying to learn what we could learn, everything from the languages to, you know, how to get around and also just what was known and what wasn't. And uh, this was especially important because Chris was working at this point. Now we'd moved on into graduate school and we're Chris is in botany by now and looking at forest ecology. So just how to determine the identity of these trees and everything else. And then at some point, um, that Spruce Acre visited, that was a very important moment because that alerted us to the opportunities um, that could come, you know, that, that were really, that were, we had to broaden our view of what we were doing. And I think the Spruce Acre was instrumental in having the New York Zoological Society take the risk, because even then <laughs> Congo was considered a risky place, to have us get started with the Okapi work. And we had a somewhat novel approach. You know, we were going to work with these bambuti pygmies. We knew they didn't know how to capture or copy. They'd done it. Um, we had to figure, we had to get radio collars on them because we weren't going to learn much. We were going to, we needed that to really learn much about them. But then uh, since they're so uh, cryptic and um, the was in the course of that study as well that the big um, and preceding it, but the big elephant slaughters 
happened, began to happen in that part of Congo. And we were stumbling on these unbelievable carcasses on our study area as we were opening our transects. So these were all, again, just signals that something, that stuff was afoot. And it was the opportunity, um, this time with the assistance of Jefferson Hall from WWF, to establish a reserve in the Aturi Forest for for Okapi, the Okapi Reserve, Faunal Reserve, that was a significant event for us to really transform what we knew about Okapi and other things into a proposal for a protected area and then on from that for a World Heritage Site. That was humbling because we knew something about Okapi in our study area and, and, you know, the 30 some odd animals we got radio collars on. But, um, you know, to talk about their distribution and their ecology across 14,000 square kilometers, which was being proposed, left us a little um, daunted. And, um, but we had to move forward with that. So I think that that experience of working with Jeff Hall, Jefferson Hall, and the other teams there, uh, the ICCN station, to develop a plan that could be converted, turned into a real protected area. I think that really was how we cut our teeth on conservation. And from there, we moved on into other areas and other protected areas as well. But we really learned how to do it with the Okapi Reserve. Yes. Well, I I have to admit, I, I, I remember attending several WCS uh, meetings together and invariably in the middle of the meeting there would be some major disaster uh, that unfolded <laughs> in DRC and you'd spend the rest of the meeting trying to figure out how you're going to get home um, and it usually involved taking a bus to some remote border crossing and then going by motorbike for about two days um, so you could actually get back home and you know there was me thinking you know would I make it in time to get my GNT at the, at the Tarangiri Safari Lodge. Um, so big, big, big difference there. Exactly, but, and um, now we don't even have roads. <laughs> yeah, well, we are. So yeah, that GNT has got to be, um, I don't know about any ice in it, but you know, you definitely need it at the, at the end of some of these trips. Yeah, the, I would say partly it's, then you're you're touching on something that's maybe one of the reasons why DRC has remained so um, inimical, if I can say, or off limits at the very least, or difficult for people. In that, you really have to be establish some level of connection with a range of people, players, uh, you know, from administrators to the border people to the local chief to whatever, who have something to say about who you are and what you're doing and be comfortable enough with that and also be able to negotiate in that. And I think that we learned how to do that. It makes one see more opportunity there than if you come in and are just faced with, you know, nothing but um, red tape and, uh, you know, totally unpenetrable red tape or someone who's, for whatever reason is in the way of what you think you want to do. And, um, you know, that you have to get past that. that. 
those kind of people are still are there. They're a little bit, now they, some of those people have, you know, there is real insecurity in some areas, but that mindset was also around what we were around. And you could, once we had our, that's maybe why we were so much place oriented, because you get into a place, you learn the players, you learn your place there, you learn what you can do, what how you can get people to work with you, you learn how to move things forward. <laughs> that um, allows you to really get going. So time is important. And networking is very important there. I realize these are important everywhere, but they certainly had a dominant context in Congo because the level of professional behavior might be kind of low otherwise. Just your comment uh, about uh, disasters in Congo. Um, events in Congo have definitely uh, threaded different experiences together and tied us to areas. And I go back to your what you said about a disaster. Perhaps the biggest disaster that ever happened was during a WCS event. And we, with all of the WCS staff, were out on our Okapi study area. Um, everybody who had come to visit, we had all walked out. It was what an eight-hour walk yeah, all, day. all day, and we were we were just relaxing. And then the little CB radio came on. There was a disaster in town, and actually, uh, the woman who was taking care of our children, Sandra Rossi, ex Peace Corps, very very strong woman, obviously. Uh, was down swimming with the ch- with our two girls, and um, the girls had just gotten out, and she was going back in to rinse her hair when she was taken by a crocodile. And it, in the end, she lost an arm, and she lost some fingers on the other hand, and um, uh, our children were fine. But I remember, okay. We're going to leave everybody out here. We're going to collect everybody's flashlight. And we walked back in and um, they had already taken her to the nearest mission station. There was a nurse in the village who had um, uh, who had stopped the bleeding. And it was uh, it was it was just amazing how people came together and her own courage in in handling all of this. It was quite amazing. But that was even more remarkable because, first of all, I have to give a little interjection here. We always bought people who came to be our tutor nannies a high deductible, low monthly, total, total insurance, you know, take care of whatever happens. It was the best money I think we've ever spent in Sandy's case. Also, her she was from a military family, and when I went to visit, they understood this kind of thing. And at, now there are many women who are amputees because of the involvement of women in active duty in Iraq and elsewhere. But then she wasn't, and she really uh, got involved also with veterans and you know with people talking about dealing with phantom pain, all this, the lost arm. But the most incredible thing was she came back. She insisted on coming back the next year. She's because she said her claim was that she had not completed her duty. 
she was come back and our girls, you know, were just on their knees in front of her. They adored her. And uh, she was also be, was fundamental because she taught Jean Remy Makana, basically got him really going in English. He went on to get his a master's degree in forestry, wrote the prize thesis at Oregon State, and then on the University of Toronto for his PhD in forest ecology, he got started with her. So it was so astounding that even faraway administrators came to a pool to actually see this woman, that she came back, and that she, first of all, that she survived, and then that she'd come back. And so that was <laughs> this event sort of also put us a little bit in on the radar for people who might not actually consider it. Um, but it also was amazing to see how that news just rocketed through the whole region and people from many far away knew about it um, and asked about it and had their own stories about it. So there's a certain element of Congolese society that is this kind of sharing across of things of this nature across people that you might not know. And um, that actually helped us uh, with our own footing there because when with conservation, we had to ask for some difficult things to happen sometimes. And it was good that this was, people knew that we were dedicated by that. They were convinced of our dedication and that was an important parameter for them. Yeah, extraordinary stories. Um, and that dedication, obviously, um, and people's conviction and, and trusting you then opened opened all sorts of doors. And I know you've discovered several new species of, of mammals over the years there. Could you tell us about some of those? So there have been two. This was actually now not the Lomami. So we're moved ahead several decades. Um, in 2002, we'd heard about this place, a place none of us had, neither of us had been. Um, in the middle, more in the middle of the country, up on a river. We didn't know anything about a big river, but there it was. And I sent um, somebody, I sent Liangola Lian out, innocent Liangola out, you know, and he couldn't get in there, but he heard about some rivers. He heard about this place that hunters, it was sort of a uh, mother load for bushmeat hunters, elephant hunters to be specific. So that was, and by 2007, we had, um, we were stepping back from WCS and now had other funding from uh, small funding and we're based with the Lukuru Foundation. Three says an interjection. I just want to say something. Um, where there was a meeting in uh, Libreville in oh, early, yes. early 2001 in which all the central Africa, the conservationists, both uh, NGOs and uh, government officials from Central African countries got together. Uh, this was just before CARPE. Uh, no, Congo Basin Forest Partnership. Yes. It just set, before, this was setting the stage for the Congo Basin yeah, exactly, Forest Partnership. Exactly. And they talked about what were the important areas and what were less important areas and where priority should be put. And um, the map, um, I would say, as conservationists that came out of it, was sort of embarrassing to me um, in that the important areas were where people were already studying 
And the unimportant areas were the areas that we didn't know much about. And in Congo, more than any place else, there were large areas that we didn't know much about. And so the the team from DR Congo was very, very small compared to the team from uh, Gabon or the team from Cameroon. And the a number and import, possible importance of areas we knew nothing about was huge. And in the map that came out, there was this was not really, uh, you know, it, these areas all had low priority and that, that graded on us. Yeah, but it wasn't as though we knew much about that area. It was that nobody did. But the Congo Basin Forest Partnership was adamant about getting landscapes that were known get this thing forward. They had to move the forest conservation agenda forward. They didn't want to have something on there while more exploration is needed. Um, They didn't deny that maybe it was, but it was not going to get the big funding. But there was this big chunk in the central part between the Salonga National Park, which was very nicely there, and the Maikoituri um, landscape, which we were very insistent was there, should be there, and it was because we were coming from there at that point. But in the middle of this was this Lamami Basin. But we did get some intimations that things were down there. We didn't know what. And so by sent the first mission, got close enough to know that it was not going to be easy to get to. There were no roads. Um, it, there, uh, and the the region, every you know, these these places that were being mentioned, I look, found them on the map. It's like, it's, how are we going to ever get there? And um, but in 2007, we'd stepped back from Wildlife Conservation Society and got some initial funding um, to do some exploratory recce's, which meant that we got our hands on a dugout. Motorized dugout. We rented one. I think, yeah. Somebody we rent to start. We rented to start. Started. There you go. Got somebody with an outboard on it because we had to go uh, start these places. This place started about um, 750 kilometers by river up from Kisangani down the Congo to the Lomami and up the Lomami, all this distance, all this distance, burning the fuel um, to get into this place. And we started putting teams out with waypoints in the middle of, you know, this big green blob on the map on Google Earth. And um, they had to get there. They knew how to, we know, you know, we used basic techniques that were all the forest teams in the WCS program used um, that we had just left. Um, And they're a part of a book put out by Lee White and Ann Edwards, still very useful today. Um, And they started, uh, started coming back with a with these big circuits and um, finding you know first of all we found a lot of the elephants and we got in there just as they were being massacred hammered. out hammered out but that there was a lot of other stuff and then on the first the return trip the very first return trip well let's just say some of the endemic animals because this area has more endemic animals than any other protected area now protected area in congo so well, that point we only knew about the bonobo yeah it had the bonobo it had the congo peacock that's true we um, knew that was there yep 
Uh, but so, they, but we didn't know a lot about the other stuff. We weren't even sure about Okapi there. Well, they they found um, evidence of Okapi. That's skin. right on that first trip. They found so the first trip already turned some stuff up, um, and particularly for the primates, since this is where the unknowns, some of these unknowns were, um, the Ash Vosper, who was one of our the one of the leading one of the field teams took a picture of a young monkey that somebody had at the um, pirogue dock at Opala. And, you know, I looked at that monkey picture and I said, what is this? This I said, this looks like an, an alpha monkey, but not really. Sent it to John Oates. John Oates had the same conclusion. Sent it to a few other um, experts. Some of them didn't even write back. And it was followed up with, a discovery shortly after that of a pet monkey just by chance, luck. The next clue was a lucky sighting of uh, a schoolgirl, the daughter of the school director in her home in Opala. I don't know, can't remember why we we were there. Maybe we were just passing through or someone said this, you know, this girl had monkeys, loved animals. So we saw her, there was this monkey again. And that was the clue that there was something out there, but it was only um, several years later that we learned that it was actually in the area we were exploring, but we had never detected it because it had it was very it's on the ground, very cryptic. It run moves fast away before you did. De- we detected it. Had a dawn call that was very briefly called. You know, we heard these things. We didn't know what it was, but that we put started putting these together that we really discovered this was um, the what became known as the Lasula, a new species of Cercopithecus monkey, most closely related to the owl-faced monkey, um, but separated by the owl-faced monkey by both the Congo River and the Lomami River. So there it was. Now it's strange. We know it's about 17,000 square kilometers. So it's no small, tiny area, but it's just yeah. that Nobody had been in there. Any bushmeat coming out of there to Kisangani would already be so smoked smoked and dried and, you know, cut up that nobody could see what it was mm-hmm. and um, was too far for fresh animals to come. And um, that's how that story started coming together. Now that we are using camera traps, um, subsequently, you know, we learned we got camera traps out there and they're all over the place. They are a common monkey <laughs> in their home, in range, their home, range, yeah. in their home, in their, in their range. But that's, that was the Lasula. Then uh, the second, so, you know, that was pretty remarkable. Uh, you don't find something like that, uh, that often brand new species. I realize it's happened, but um, this was the first one, I believe, since the Kipunji. Yeah. Well, then about the same time, um, Maurice Emechu, one of our Congolese um, assistants, a team leader, form a team leader, former school teacher, decided he'd rather be working with us than being a school director. He was uh, without pay and was very interested in the fauna. Come from Central DRC, um, saw an animal, got a saw a monkey, got a picture of it that we couldn't, it wasn't a great picture, and we only had one, we couldn't see what it was. This was 2008, 2008-9. The same time, 2009, I saw, in the same general area, I saw 
and heard monkeys and then saw something. I didn't know what it was. But there's so much out there that you see briefly and you don't really know and you just, it rolls off of you. You know, you almost, you're so busy trying to figure out <laughs> and deal with stuff you do know <laughs> or yeah. can know rather than what you can't. But there they were. And it was only now uh, 10 years later in 2018 that Jean-Pierre Capale, another one of the um, local high school graduate, uh, high school education, total naturalist, just as into, you know, into loves the discovery, loves the, the forest and working in the forest. And it was from the ethnic groups, one of the ethnic groups in the area came up and said he had a monkey um, that he didn't know and thought it was something different. Well, we took it seriously because Kapala had also been two years, four years before that, instrumental in the discovery of a third monkey um, that was new to the area and totally new to that region, but was already known. This is Dryas, the yeah. driest monkey, Cercopithecus, now Chlorocebus uh, of rainforest vervet now. Um, but he discovered that just by chance uh, walking through the back part of a little town, not a small town either, and only five kilometers from one of our base camps. And there was this monkey hanging out and it was the guy wouldn't give him the monkey. He thought he would be arrested, but he let him take pictures. <laughs> that was the start of that one. Wow. But um, what Kapale saw this, this other monkey and he insisted it was something different. So I said, well, you got to get some pictures. He said he, he came, he got them, got some photos. And it really was, what is this? It was totally unlike anything we'd seen. Well, it turns out now, and we've got the evidence we're working on the paper on it, it's a brand new species of the genus Colobus. Brand new. Oh, wow. Most closely related to the, best, you know, the black Colobus on Bioko Island and mm -hmm. um, the Atlantic coastal forests, Gabon, Lobe. Yeah. Colobus satanus. Yeah. But um, very different. Very different and with an incredibly marked pied, pied face and facial patterns of um, orange around the mouth and nose, which they have even at the youngest age. And um, it, this, here was this thing there. Now we know it's really, uh, you know, it's this ritual range on this tucked into this little part of, of uh, that Congolese forest right there. You never would have guessed this. There's no mountains nearby. Uh, and never would have guessed it would be something like a black colobus. But there it is. And it's between the Lulamami and the it's, And it's between the Lulamami and the Lulaba. And by good fortune, <laughs> right in that national park. So all of a sudden, you know, the, over the since starting there in 2007, when there were, you know, eight species of monkeys and the bonobo known or yeah, that's right. The seven species of monkeys in the bonobo, eight anthropoid primates. We're now up to 12. Oh, and, wow. you know, all of a sudden, and, and of them, seven are endemic to Congo, two are endemic to that landscape. It's become one of the most important places for primate conservation now in Central Africa. And it was never on this Congo Basin Forest Partnership map. So, okay. you know, it's, it's all a bit humbling, uh, humorous, maybe. <laughs> but you have to look at every clue when it comes in. That's our lesson. That's our the lesson we learned there. We don't, we hear a name, we don't know what that name is. Um, we 
we ask again, we get people to describe it. And um, there are actually a couple more out there. I'll let Therese talk about one. Again, another Jean-Pierre Capali finding. Why don't you tell about the, the ungulate? Okay, but mm-hmm. before I do that, let, let me just say, still in primates, that uh, the new primates are amazing. But um, very important as well is the extension of the range of a number of what were critically endangered primates, like this Chlorocebus uh, dryas, which has now been found in five different places and within the park. And yeah, and outside the park. Um, And um, Protocolobus. Oh, yeah. Pilocolobus. Yeah. Permanentary red colobus. Right. And the red colobus. Um, and even bonobo, you know, we found them quite a bit farther south and east. The, 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 it wasn't known what their south and east limit of the range was. So it, it's, um, you know, by looking, you know, the, the sort of the frustrating thing is where there is no knowledge, there's no real understanding that something brand new is there. You know, the the map was looked at. This was part of the Central African forest. This was part of the uh, the lack of the Congo River um, inner basin. And there was no real appreciation of the incredible diversity within that until we took this area and we looked at it closely. And so, I, I, I you know, there's a, there's a lesson there, of course. Um, in terms of other new species within the area, well, we take seriously what people like uh, Jean-Pierre Capale, this this Congolese um, naturalist, say. And, you know, he he's told us that there is an area which is in the buffer zone. It's beyond the park where there's um, a an ungulate that needs to be looked at. Yeah, exactly what it is. We don't know yet. We haven't been there. But it it, it was Capale, Mechu, Maurice Mechu, Henri Seligoa. There are more than, there are several of these people who've worked with us over the years who've made um, significant discoveries of mainly range extensions. But they've inspired other people um, working with the project and we were getting other information coming in you know that we could you know we didn't see these things ourselves right off the bat other people saw them but they now knew how to document them and there was another primate um a mangabe clearly uh that was several seen on several different locations and it always looked somewhat different on each of the different locations well likely a leucocystic um Black mangabe, sooty mangabe, um, looks like that's what it is, but some of them have white tails, pretty spectacular. Um, you know, so the the awareness of novelty and the interest in novelty was key to develop in the people working with us because many of these people were not science, trained scientists or um, really uh, going to be pursuing any of this for a graduate degree or a professional degree, but they did know it was important for the protection and um, the significance of that Lomami region. So 
Um, we started there in 2007, what now, 15 years in that region. And um, I still think there's going to be more interesting things to discover there, these leucistic document. I don't know about the discoveries, you never know. But certainly, um, they, some of the hints, that new diker. There's another monkey further south that a German graduate student asked us about. Um, again, got in from, this is now outside of the park, outside of the buffer zone, down now moving into these vast region of southern gallery forests, forest islands and savannas. Very low population. Very low human population, population, human population. And he got repeated information about a monkey, a name he couldn't attribute to anything. And, um, you know, some even some locations, nobody's been back in there yet to follow up on it. So, um, you know, this uh, there are some interesting possibilities, but you really do want to have the time to be able to, <laughs> to do it. You can't walk in on these things easily and then. You may walk in and discover it was maybe not such a great thing after all, but we do we do continue to hear about um, unusual creatures um, that um, have names um, at some level, but don't match up with any description that either we or our the people working with us in our area know about. One probably aspect of that is the incredible habitat diversity along the Lomami. Um, we had previously worked in the Okapi Reserve, and that has large areas of even monodominant forest of um, where change is much more gradual and um, less uh, less abrupt and less uh, extreme. And the Lomami has a lot of different, very very variable habitats in terms of. Um, uh, in terms of uh, water, in terms of of composition, in terms of substrate, and um, this obviously, you know, contributes to the, the diversity of the animals as well. Yeah, that, take the okapi, for example. We've since been working now with um, colleagues from Cardiff University. You know, spent some who's a geneticist working on this, and we've been able to document this, the range that the Okapi now has on the left bank, the west side of the Congo River. And um, David Stanton was uh, key on that and wrote a great thesis and produced some fine papers. And one of the things that emerges is that, um, first of all, uh, while it's genetic composition, it's, it's genetic, its genome is contains everything that's found in Okapi elsewhere. It's a particular it's a particular arrangement of those alleles that's specific to the West Bank of the Congo. The other thing from the ecological point is that there are these huge forests out there, and this animal is nothing like the abundance it is in the Aturi. I mean, you it's really localized, um, and there's difficult to predict why it can be in one place and not in the other. It's not got to do with hunting pressure. And mm. but as you we got to working with the, um, a, a Congolese botanist, another fine researcher in the area, Modestine Company. She had uh, was doing these large, a whole series of plots across these gradients of soil type and uh, in seasonal inundation and all this. And we were finding that- Including the, um, the understory. 
we found that while all of the species that the okapi, the genera in particular, but even the species that okapi were highly favored in the Ituri, where they were relatively more abundant, for sure, just while they were in the Lomami, they didn't have anything like the stands in the understory that we found in the uh, in the Torian where these okapi were always coming to eat. So um, it's a, it's these floristics play out in an interesting floristic composition played out in an interesting way to affect the distribution of a species um, that we hadn't anticipated before. But the okapi is there. And it's a significant part of that park's um, fauna that is why it's important to protect it. So the only protected population of Okapi on the in that left bank, that left that uh, west side of the Congo River. Most people don't even know Okapi are there. <laughs> They're there. <laughs> now let's talk about Okapi because clearly they are probably one of the most iconic species of large mammal anywhere on the planet, um, and. The two of you probably know more about Okapi than any other human on the planet. So um, you radio collared them originally. What um, what was that like? What how did you catch them, and what what did you learn from 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 the radio collaring? Um, we radio collared them. We dug pits along uh, Okapi trails, and uh, in the Uturi, we worked very closely with the Mbuti pygmies. In fact, they were most, most of our, our field team were uh, Mbuti pygmies. And um, they helped us, you know, they helped find Okapi trails and uh, um, helped orient where we would put in the pits and um, helped did the surveillance of all the pits. Yeah, they had to remember where those pits yeah. were. We would have we could. We had hundreds of pits, and we couldn't remember <laughs> anything. <laughs> so they they uh, they uh, you know spread out every morning, uh, examined all the pits, and uh, quickly um, uh, actually through running and and communicated back where Okapi had been um, captured. And went to our field base where we had all the equipment to put to put it. on that and we trudge out and uh so when we got when they you know when we got word back there was an old in one of these pits. And there, first of all, it's a dangerous undertaking. I mean, it's a fall, these animals are cruising along and down they go. Uh, but it was the way that they were being caught for the the original copy were captured for the zoos and was the only way uh that we knew or anybody that we were with knew how to catch them. So it was a, a tried and true method, but it did have risks because we did you had to get to the animal before uh, rain got on them. And if they got rained on um, and were attacked, I mean, we they could be attacked by just droves of sissy flies and things like this. So we had to there had to work efficiently. So we on this, but we basically while the animal was in the pit, we determined what we could about the animal, its sex. Uh, we put the radio collar on them, uh, took some photographs of a few distinctive features that we could see there. We couldn't see the whole animal. And then the bambuti um, broke down using hoes and axes, broke down the pit in front and basically made a dirt ramp out for the animal. And we had it 
the animal was restrained behind that ramp while it was being built with uh, a screen of sticks. And then the screen was removed and out came the animal. And um, that was how um, that was how we managed to do that. We went, we worked, I did we ever did we work with Emil Dolan Sec? I think we finally got we had to replace radio collars. We worked with both Emil Dolan Sec, who was the vet at that time at the Wildlife Conservation Society, and later Billy Karish, um, to hunt down with a radio with a, uh, a dart gun animals that already had collars <laughs> so we could replace the collars. And that was not easy, even with these skilled bambuti trackers. Uh, you know, a big, a big muzungu like Emil Dolan like, just couldn't quite get in there. So it was not, you know, there were many frustrating moments there. And um, but the, we had these collars, Talonics collars. They they took us each twenty four months. They're pretty good, but they were not GI. There were no GPS collars there. We had a big cruising around the forest on this footpaths that we little made a grid of these things with these handheld receivers. Climb any little yeah, termite is, mount. This is nineteen eighty five. Yeah, nineteen eighties yeah. to uh, get a signal and then triangulate that on the footpath. So you know, one animal a day. We had we trained a lot of bambuti how to. Um, use that radio equipment, radio, you know, the receivers, and were able to uh, get maps. Some some cases, they came back with the location. We had an address for each path crossing so they could tell where they were. Uh, they sometimes left leaf singles and things like that so we could actually locate where um, the animals had been. And that was how we put together what we knew about ranging, um, Females have much smaller, have smaller ranges. Males range very widely. Uh, young animals, both sexes, stay a long time with their mother. We learned all of that by this simple method. But it took us, what, six years, yeah. five, six years. That's all we did. <laughs> I remember one of the amazing things was realizing the intensity with which mm -hmm. a lactating mother uh you know, stripped the foliage in her area. That's right. That was just, whoa, huge. So this is a big folivore in a shady rainforest understory. Just, you know, that's not a niche that's very widely replicated elsewhere. And the females are larger than the males. Um, and the dominate the males. The males approach females very cautiously in the wild when they're around. And they, females... I think it, it, the females also defend, you know, keeping other animals off of their territory other than crossing through. And they, when they're lactating, the, the energy demands were just so high. That's how we often detect them. We could hear them feeding and foraging because they're moving and stripping leaves, stripping leaves, stripping leaves. And that's how the bambuti taught us how to hear that. And we use that as well to be able to get even for our collared animals to actually get close to them because we they weren't so easy to see even when they were uh, even with animals of that size and um, sometimes you know that and they also got somewhat used to us they allowed us to approach them they they recognized us as friend rather than foe or at least tolerated us as time went on but um, Finally, that was a very important clue for us in the Lomami because we had learned how to recognize 
these stripped, these heavily browsed home ranges of adult lactating female okapi. And we were always on the lookout for those things in uh, the Lomami, and we never saw anything quite like that. And the camera trap images and the locations we have on a Okapi are that they're much probably having to range much wider. There could be a very different um, a very different use of home range there than what we found in the Turi. But these um, stands of Drypedes, uh, Rhinoraceae, that family was big for them, um, Rubiaceae, their, their favorite foods, these things were the, um, where these Okapi queens were hunkered down and they uh, controlled that space. The males were cruising around looking for them. <laughs> home range is three, four times the size of that female. And um, it was also amazing how long they, the young animals stayed with the mother. We had one young animal when it was fully adult size before it finally left. And when it left, we had two or three days when we could get its signal and then it just gone. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And how often would you see uh, the okapi? How, how often, once, once they had the radio collar on or once, once they were out or in, or, um, in the wild, how often would you actually clap eyes on one? Well, so we weren't making a big effort to see them so much, although we did. Once we had collars on them, we were busy trying to get where they were, what they were doing, uh, get a precise location. Because we didn't remember this is the era before GPSs, not only GPS radio collars, but there weren't even handheld GPSs that could penetrate this canopy. So we had to use a mapped grid system that you know we put out ourselves. So there's always issues about that. Um, and it, and so We're running around the corner right. to get a different, <laughs> a different angle on it and triangulate it. So we, but we did see them regularly. And in fact, moving in and across the forest, we did get glimpses of them as well, even on collared animals. But I actually think that um, working with the bambuti pretty consistently, if someone had that as a dedicated objective. And you put in enough time with some of those um, bambuti trackers familiar with their forest because they learn about where these animals are by doing other things in the forest. They're not hunting okapi. They're doing other things, but they are aware of them. That would be the best chance to see them. But we saw them a number of times. But we didn't. There, are, I, did, I didn't send the one picture we had of an okapi at about well. 12 meters away, you can't even see it in the picture. Then you finally, in the photo, you finally see the leg. Oh, there it is. You know, they disappear in that forest understory. It's incredible. I bet. But, if you are in the forest and you approach an Akapi, what's their defense strategy? Do they freeze like a diker? Do they silently melt away? Do they charge? Do they run? Our radio copy spent a lot of time standing in one place. Chewing their yeah. Yeah. Chewing a cut or not even or maybe that. They're very um dikers will you know scuttle away and then you can see them dikers are more common, obviously. Okapi will move away from me if you get very but very close. Yeah. But oftentimes we knew this from radio collared animals, they would just sit there and let us move. They they counted on being invisible. Right. Excellent. Yeah. And so when they did move, it was this crashing thing close to you, almost too close, you know, and it's like. They don't even, now in the Lomami, they're coming, we've discovered they are coming into these little tiny clearings. We didn't see that happening in the Turi. 
not they came into tree falls in the Ituri because that was abundant forage. And that would be a good place to camp out and to wait for them to come in, especially a place where you've seen they've been coming and feeding. You want to get there again. But in the Lomami, they're coming into what we call Edo's, little natural clearings where there is some enough of the, some of the favored browse plants that they like. And we've picked them up on our radio, uh, on our camera traps there. But um, I think, you know, you'd learn a strategy on how to, if you worked on it and worked with um, competent, find, able to identify a competent local um, Bambuti guides. And it's not all Bambuti who know what they're doing with Okapi. But if you worked with them, um, you'd find uh, a way to see them. And you might even find something new about them. Like Teresa and I were just talking about the northern part of the Ituri Forest, this area with Inselbergs. So these gigantic granitic um, low massifs just emerge out of the forest. And they, are, they have a flora that's unique, uh, linked actually to East Africa, even Ethiopia, an endemic cycads, this kind of stuff. But around the edge of that, they dry out seriously in the dry season because they're just the soils are so shallow. But right when the beginning of rains, a huge flush of leaf, and um, I think, and among them species, we they will copy favor. And I think someone could make some discoveries about that. Either first putting out camera traps confirming that's what's happening, and then put themselves somewhere where they're going to see one of these things come out. And start foraging on the edge of that insel bird, but yeah. that's that's for someone else to discover. Yeah, I think large mammal viewing in the central forest will will would take. I mean, it's not as though there is now a tourist group that does that, and it's not as though you can move around in the Land Rover and see things. But um, I, I I would think that for success, you know, to to work with Bambuti where they exist and um, local people and get up seasonality and the importance of Edo's and um, it, it, would, it would be possible to do quite a bit, Yeah, but it would, it, you'd want to, you'd want to um, maximize uh, what is known and what can be known about uh, variability in habitat and seasonality and how that affects um, animals. So it, we we had a, a actually some funders that came in to see Bonobo. Bonobo and we have not um, we have not radio collared Bonobo and we have not um, habituated any Bonobo. But we were able to do it just by putting out teams and um, a couple of weeks ahead of time and following uh, a group of bonobo and then bringing in the funders and going out and taking them out early in the morning and we could do it. No. Yeah, they, for bonobos, I mean, the problem is we see bonobos and our field teams see bonobos fairly frequently. Um, They're more, less cryptic than Okapi. Oh, yeah. But um the problem is keeping, they're just moving all the time, finding, you know, and keeping up with them is the issue there. I would say the Lamami is a spectacular place to watch primates, uh, mm -hmm. you know, colobus, cercopithecus, mangabees, these new things, even this new monkey, the Lequali that I just described, the new colobus. It's not difficult to see. 
It was just that we, you know, it's not that common and it's a very small area and it's a big forest. It's a big forest. So, you know, you you could definitely, for primates, I'd say it's a prime place to go and you'll see things there you won't see anywhere else in the world. It sounds just wonderful. I think me and just about everyone who's listening to this will be twitching or feeling weak at the knees at the thought of going over and doing any of these things. Just being allowed to get in there is is the thing. Therese and John, I could listen to you forever. That was absolutely extraordinary. What a what an adventurous life you've had. What mammal sightings you've seen. I am so envious. I am now more desperate than ever to try to get to the DRC, despite you being very clear about just how complicated that could be. Thank you so much for joining us. Our pleasure. Our pleasure, really. Yeah, and I absolutely echo that. Um, the, you have led absolutely extraordinary lives. You have done incredible work out there. You should be extremely proud of your achievements. Um, and uh, I also look forward to the day when I can go to DRC and perhaps try and track down one of those a copy. Oof, one day. Thank you. You've been listening to Mammal Watch with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at memowatching.com slash podcast.